Welcome to Mill City one more time. My name is Stephanie. I'm one of the pastors here. Special welcome to anybody who's here visiting or maybe here for one of the first few times. I'd love a chance to meet you. I'm usually hanging out in the back or right up here after this. So uh, make sure you come and say hi. I'd love to connect a face and a name and do the best I can to remember your name, which people who know me know that's a hard thing for me. So starting with some vulnerability. Um, Let's pray before we uh, get into this conversation this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who promises to be with us, that you are not far away, you didn't set this world into motion and then just leave it alone, but that you are active, you are moving around us, you are inviting us to join you in what you're doing in the world. God, we're so grateful that we have that invitation, and we're so grateful for the invitation you've given us to join the story that's happening here at Sheridan School, the ways we've been able to support this school and love this school in your name, Jesus, but also the way we've been able to receive from them the hospitality of worshiping here. We don't take it for granted. And we pray, God, that you would bless this school in Jesus' name, that your presence here would make a difference in the lives of the teachers and the faculty and the staff and also the students, God, that you would be empowering them as they come here to learn each day. God, we pray that you would be teaching us this morning, that you would say to each one of these people what you want to say to them, that we would be people who grow and, and change and are become more and more like you, Jesus, as we spend this time in worship together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as Michael mentioned earlier, we're in this conversation called How I Learned About Race. And there's four of us who are sharing our stories. So Mike, Pastor Mike went the first week. Last week, if you were here, we had a guest speaker, uh, Dr. Dennis Edwards from Sanctuary Covenant. He's a pastor there. They're just a mile down the road here. They're about to start worshiping in their new building, and they're our our cousins. We love them. And then um, I'm up this week, and then next week, Dr. Leland Eliason, who's been a member here for a long time, is going to be sharing his story. And... uh, Our heart here at Mill City for racial justice and and reconciliation, it's a part of our our four mission priorities of 2017. The covenant members were really listening to God, and at the end of 2016, there was this sense that we should step into these different areas. And so if you want to know more about that, we did a whole sermon series about the four priorities in January as we kicked off the year. So I encourage you to go back and look at that. Um, But as we've been sharing these stories, that's just what it is. It's our stories. Right? There's no, no assumption at all that they would be the same as your story. Your story is really different than even these four different stories that are being shared. And as we're sharing, we are encouraging you to think about your story in this area. How have you learned about race in your life? What were the experiences in your life that shaped your understanding of this concept in our world today, in our country? Uh, and I think uh, all of us who are speaking would agree we could have and maybe should have named this conversation How I'm Learning About Race. Because it's not something that you arrive at completely understanding. The complexities, the realities, the importance of this conversation as people who follow Jesus is not something that can be checked off on a list. And I think it would be a shame if we, it's too important for us to reduce it to something like a simple endeavor that we can complete at some point. And so that's the question for all of us today. How are we learning about this? What are some of the active ways we're pursuing learning about this in our lives? So we're hoping that you're thinking about that as well. Um, We've been sharing two important definitions with you about what we're talking about, because if we're going to use words, we want to make sure we at least start with as much as we can being on the same page. And so I'm going to put these words up on the screen. Uh, It's our definitions of race and ethnicity. Okay, so I'll read it for you. Race is a social construct created to separate groups of people by physical appearance and create a hierarchy of human value. It's not something that God created, but it is a very powerful force in the world that we live in today. And then we would define ethnicity as a combination of our language and culture that has shaped who we are. 
So you might have different definitions of these words, but these are the working definitions I'm using today as I talk about these two things, okay? Race being something that is not what God designed and God's hope for humanity because it creates a, a false hierarchy, yet it is very real in our world. And ethnicity being something beautiful that God created for us to engage more fully in the image of God because of the diversity in which God created humanity. So uh, these topics, this, this topic for me, uh, racial justice, racial reconciliation, racial righteousness, there's a lot of terms you might use for it. It's a real passion area for me. And I think as I share my story, that won't be hard to see um, as I share that with you this morning. Um, but I want to start with a passage that is really a foundational one for me as how I think about this in my life. And it may or may not be familiar to you. It's a passage in Acts 10. This is the story of Peter, one of the earliest leaders of the church, having this dream about how God is wanting to welcome the, the Gentiles, this other group, that he's a Jewish man, welcoming the Gentiles into the family of God. This is a huge deal. And Peter has this dream, and at the same time, miles away, there's this other man named Cornelius, who is a Gentile, and he's having a dream that a man named Peter is supposed to come and share this good news. And so Peter hears about that, and he comes to Cornelius' house. And so I just want to read the passage that is really foundational for me. Uh, it's Acts 10, starting in verse 27. We'll have it up here on the screen. While talking with him, Cornelius, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And then they explained the vision that Cornelius had had with Peter's name in the vision. I'm going to skip to verse 34. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. This is such a defining passage for me in my understanding of this concept in our world today because of three words. And those words are, Peter went inside. Peter went inside. Peter, being willing as a Jewish man to go into the home of a Gentile, you heard what he said, that he didn't think at that point he should do that, but God beckoned him and offered a change of his heart and a change of reality and invited him to go into Cornelius' house. This was huge because these religious purity laws meant that you were not supposed to do that, but Peter went inside. And for me, it symbolizes the core of what I think this conversation is about. And I, I like to call it uh, a crossing the threshold moment. Crossing the threshold moments where you have a, a line that has previously been drawn, but you cross into that threshold, whether that's into someone's life, into someone's story, into someone's home. These threshold, crossing the threshold moments, and I, I'll come back to this as I share my story, because like I said, it's so central to who I am. When I think about my story with learning about race and what that means in our life, it started for me when I was very young. When I was growing up, my dad helped to lead one of the largest parachurch ministries in the world, and that meant that he traveled all over the world, and he brought me and my brother with him often in my family. It was an amazing privilege that I had in my life, I would say at this point, having always, since I can remember, known people closely, had relationships with people of different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, and different racial backgrounds. My parents brought me into many threshold-crossing experiences in my life. 
And uh, my dad died when I was a teenager, and one of the things I often wish that I had a chance to thank him for was the opportunity that he gave me to be around people who were so different than me, to take me to places and also to bring those folks into our lives through the relationships that he had. I lived in multiple countries when I was little, and by the time I was five, I think I had been to probably 10 or 15, somewhere in there, different countries around the world. And so I'm five years old, and we're living in Atlanta, Georgia, which is a different culture than here if you haven't been there. And uh, we're driving from Atlanta to Minnesota because my parents needed to relocate here for his job. Um, and so we're about halfway between Atlanta and Minnesota, and I ask what seemed like a really obvious question at this point in my life, what language do they speak in Minnesota? And, you know, Minnesota, Atlanta, Georgia, they all, I mean, at this point, I'm five years old, I have no concept of the fact that my parents have taken me all over the globe at this point. So what, what language do they speak in Minnesota? Uh, well, many languages, of course. Uh, we got to Minnesota and we moved to Brooklyn Park, which is a suburb just a little ways from here if you're not from around here. Brooklyn Park is a very, uh, it's a first-ring suburb, it's very diverse. In the last sub, uh, census, I believe that Brooklyn Park has a higher rate of diversity ethnically and culturally than Minneapolis proper does. And so this was the, the world in which I grew up in. So many of my friends in elementary school were not white. Some of my first friends uh, that I got to know were very different than me. So I think culture and ethnicity is something I was exposed to from some of my earliest experiences in life. And like I said earlier, I see that as a huge privilege in my life that I had that. Not everybody has that experience. However, there is one defining moment when I think I learned about the concept of race for the first time, even though that word wasn't used. Uh, given my upbringing, I didn't know a lot of my actual blood or adopted family members. They're all over the country, and because my parents were traveling, I didn't spend that much time with my legal or blood family. So I had all these aunties and uncles who were the people that worked with my parents. And so I had these aunties and uncles. I had uncles who were Taiwanese and African-American and aunties who were Argentinian and Indian, and I called them Auntie Susan or Uncle Mark because that's the way that we referred to them. And I remember a specific story. I was very close, and I still am in a lot of ways, even though she lives in India again, to my Aunt Susan. And I've got a picture of her with me and my brother. She's from India. She lives there again now. And man, this woman, she was there when I was born. She was there on holidays. She's, she is still single, and she was single, and so she spent a lot of time with our family. She was a part and is a part of our family. She was always there. And uh, if you can see the picture, you can see that my brother and I don't look too much different than we did back then in 18, 1985. Right, Rob? We won't mention anything about his hair. Um, but I remember a very defining moment in my relationship with Susan, and that was when a specific adult in my life, in fact, I don't even remember which adult it was, uh, explained to me that Auntie Susan wasn't my real aunt. And the way that this adult, who I think meant well, pointed out to me that she wasn't my real aunt is because she said, look, Auntie Susan's skin is darker than yours. So that's how you know she's not your real aunt. Now this frame of reference broke down really quickly, uh, but as you can imagine, this was difficult news for me because I was so close to her. And being the young, stubborn little girl that you might imagine I was, I said, no, you're wrong. Auntie Susan is my real aunt. You don't know what you're talking about. I was very precocious, like my young nephew, Amos, if you've met him, uh, and it just wasn't going to fly with me. And then you can imagine how they, I was increasingly confused because in my family there's quite a few people who are adopted, cousins that I have, and they're not white. And so then, you know, the reality of this idea that you don't look like each other so you're not family thing, it just doesn't stand up in a court of law, like officially. It does not, right? 
because these were my family members, so this was very confusing to me. And this is the way that I began to understand what race was like in my life. And there were some other kind of defining moments, actually a series of moments, that then took my understanding of these differences to a new level because I began to understand, as I watched what was happening around me, the realities of what race uh, means in our world and in our country. I would notice these experiences mostly when we were traveling. So I would observe as a young child how Auntie Susan, who had this beautiful dark Indian skin, and Uncle Mark, who was African-American and he was from here, um, how he, they were treated differently, or other people of color we were traveling with. They'd be treated differently in other countries, but also here in the United States when we would be at the airport or encountering different, different situations. I would notice that people were either disregarding them or speaking to them differently, and oftentimes when they noticed that these folks were with my family, people would just quickly change how they were behaving and relate completely different to them and to us. And so I was noticing as a little girl that the reality is that there's a privilege to the color of skin that I have and that my parents have, that people literally treat, treated us differently because of it. And so a lot of moments stick out to me uh, at, that, that were at the airport because Susan and Mark and many of the other people would often be uh, stuck at customs for a really long time. Uh, even though a number of the people of color were American citizens born in America, they would be stuck at customs for a long time. And when you're a little kid and your family's going to wait for the whole group to come through together, it felt like forever that they were asking these questions. And I was, you know, off to the side. I'm like, what are they talking to her about? What are they talking to him about? And I remember how frustrated I would feel the, the, the presence of these other adults in my life. I could, I could feel how tense they were and how frustrated they were. I could feel the anxiety, not only in Uncle Mark or Auntie Susan, but uh, for my dad and for my mom. You see, my dad had what I think we can now say uh, a little, somewhat of a, not a little, somewhat of an anger problem. And he actually had counseling and worked through that in his life in different ways. But I could see the kind of steam rising in him at different points. Uh, and I, I, I noticed about my dad as a very young girl that he had this real heart for justice, so he hated to see people treated the wrong way. And, and he didn't always handle that <laughs> the best way. But one of the ways that he did handle it really well, along with my mom, is to pull us aside and to explain to us when we were little kids, there's times when you're going to see people treat other people differently because of the color of their skin, because they talk differently, because they have a different background. Maybe you'll see people treat people poorly because they uh, have a disability or they're maybe not as intelligent as other people. And my parents would say, you're not to be like that. <laughs> if we're gonna love like Jesus, we have to learn to see the beauty in difference. And this is something that I'm so grateful my parents taught me. And they did not live that out perfectly, believe me. But they lived it out in ways that deeply shaped me. They were people who were willing to cross the threshold. They didn't wait for other people to cross theirs. They went towards people with love and openness. They listened well. They modeled what it looked like to be a learner in these situations. I do remember, though, however, a time when my dad just snapped. Um, I'm pretty sure that it was in a customs situation, and we were coming into the country, and Auntie Susan was hung up at the customs, and I don't know what the agent said, something that must have been, like, the last straw for my dad, and my dad just lost his you-know-what on this guy. He just, I was stunned. He started yelling at this guy, just yelling at him about how he was treating her unfairly. I don't remember all that he said because I was stunned. And I, I look back at that, it, that situation now. I was maybe 10 years old. Uh, it was so well before 9-11. 
And I look back at that situation now and I realize the privilege and the power that my dad had that he could freak out on this guy in the customs line and then just walk out of there still fuming. Pretty sure now, regardless of the color of your skin, you'd be in handcuffs if you did that in customs post 9-11. But these were some of these initial experiences that I had trying to understand race and ethnicity in my life. It was confusing. I bet a lot of you felt like it was been confusing in your life. And I had very little words to talk about what I was experiencing in my life. It's like I just didn't have the right vocabulary to be able to describe and to explain and to understand what I was experiencing growing up in this really diverse neighborhood. Like I didn't know how to talk about the fact that my school, my elementary school was really diverse, but all the teachers and faculty and administration were white. And I didn't know what to say and what to do when I was a little kid and I saw one of my teachers uh, take one of the African-American boys, pin him against the wall and hold him there by his neck because he was screwing around in class. I didn't know how to, to wrap my head around some of the experiences I was having, like befriending this little girl or trying to befriend this little girl who was Muslim and, and the other kids were trying to pull her headscarf off and she was so terrified. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to understand the, the fact that some of my other white friends weren't allowed to go to the, to the apartment complex and spend time with some of our friends at their homes and, and why we were in mixed groups in certain spaces and I was the only white kid when we were there. I didn't know how to explain this or talk about it or wrap my head around all of this in my life. And I also felt some of that anger and some of that frustration. I've never had to deal with that in the same way that my dad did, probably because he worked through it in such a healthy way. But man, I just felt that sometimes. And I would feel defensive. Sometimes people would talk about white people and what they did or didn't do, and I just felt like, are you talking, what, what, I didn't do that. And I would feel defensive. I would feel hurt. I'd feel confused and angry. Maybe some of you can relate to feeling like that. So when I think about this question, how did you learn about race, I think about these snapshots in my life. It's almost like these little film clips. And there's tons of them, way more than I just shared when I think back over my life. I could tell you countless stories, but the next really defining moment for me in this area was during my freshman year of college at Bethel University. It was called Bethel College back then, throwback. And uh, I, I took what ended up being my favorite class that I ever took in college. Like it was the first semester, my best class ever. So it was kind of downhill from there, but we won't talk about it. But I took this class, it ended up being my favorite class in undergrad, and it was called Race, Ethnicity, and Peacemaking. And I just think that they assigned me to the class because it was like a tag, you had to have a certain amount of classes. And I could share for a long time about the impact that this class had on my life, but the greatest that this class gave me was vocabulary to talk about my experiences. Those definitions that we gave earlier of race and ethnicity, that's when I learned those for the first time, 17 years ago. And it really helped me to put uh, my brain around some of the experiences that I had had. And it gave me words to talk about a lot of things that have happened in the last 17 years, as you can imagine. It was in that class that I learned about the phrase and first understood the phrase social construct. If you don't know what that means and that's confusing to you, do not feel bad about that at all. But I really encourage you to, to look it up. Just start with Googling it. Because it really helped me understand uh, the realities of what I had experienced in life, things that were social constructs. And then I heard another phrase in the class that really, really helped me, even though it was a very difficult phrase for me, and that's the term white privilege. So I brought a definition of that too, so we're on the same page. This is how it was defined in my class. White privilege is a term for societal privileges that benefit people identified as white in some countries beyond what is commonly experienced 
by non-white people under the same social, political, or economic circumstances. I remember last fall when Pastor Dee McIntosh came and spoke here at Mill City and she was talking about privilege. She talked about how we all have privilege in our life. She said, as an African-American woman, she has privilege because she's in the middle class, she's very well educated, she's intelligent. And she talked about how important it was for us to acknowledge our privilege and she said, not to guilt and shame us, but because that's the beginning of awareness so that we can move forward. And I thought it was so wonderful that she was willing to say what that meant for her and her life as a person of color. And then what did it mean for me to, to go further into that to think about white privilege and what that means in my life? And I'll be honest, when I heard that phrase for the first time, I was simultaneously, I felt like this was so helpful. Wow, this is really naming some things that are helpful to understand. And then I was really defensive and frustrated. And sometimes I still feel that way about it. I remember feeling this myriad of emotions. It was like I felt defensive and hurt and frustrated and pensive and interested and intrigued and, pain, and pained. Like it was like this huge ball of emotions that I had. I was like 19, trying to like wrap my head around it. And I still feel some of those things today. I bet a lot of you feel that. Maybe some of you had no idea this is what we were talking about today, and others of you thought, man, we're going in for week three of the most difficult topic in America right now. But you're here. Let me just tell you, like, that's a big deal because this is really hard. I feel a lot of tension. It's difficult to choose this conversation for a lot of us. I think we could be honest and say that brunch would be a lot easier to swallow than race in America. We could be there right now, but you're here. Man, I remember how confused I felt when I understood and, and had to wrap my head around the phrase white privilege or even the phrase white supremacy and how in my mind that was like the KKK or now it's people with torches or angry, overtly racist people and having to understand that those realities, like those pictures that I have in my mind are extreme forms and realities that come from systemic white privilege and systemic white supremacy. Man, it was so confusing, and, and maybe it feels that way to you. And I have just felt consistently troubled, I think I'd say, and discouraged by how differently all these terms are talked about in culture. Have you guys felt that before? I, I feel like more than ever, it's like two people are having a conversation, and we're saying the same words, but we're having a completely different conversation because of how differently we're defining these things and how these words make us feel. Over the years in my life, there's been a lot of friendships and mentors and people in my life that have helped me learn more about race and ethnicity by sharing their story. But you know what else? They also helped me learn about my own cultural identity and how important it is for me to recognize the ethnic background that I have. I read some really important books that shaped me. Let me just mention a few of them, and I have a list of them for you guys if anybody wants it. Uh, the Road, Roadmap to Reconciliation by Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil. Disunity in Christ by Christina Cleveland. Right now I'm reading a book called White Awake by Daniel Hill and another book called A Good Time for the Truth, Race in Minnesota by Sun Young Shin. And like I said, I have a list of these if anybody wants it. But there was one read that I look back and I say this, maybe you've had this in different areas of life where you say that thing that I read shifted my thinking more than anything. I don't know what that is for you in this area, but for me it was just a short article called the Invisible Knapsack by Penny McIntosh. Has anybody read The Invisible Knapsack? So it was in 1990, so I imagine some people did, and some of you weren't alive in 1990, so it's different for you. Um, but it's basically just this, this two-pager, and I have it printed off if people want it. And this woman, Peggy McIntosh, she's a white 
woman. She um, has her PhD from Harvard, and uh, she basically decided, as she was thinking about this concept of white privilege, that she would make a list of 50 ways that white privilege for her as a white woman, she's in her 80s now, um, experience, what, what her experience is of that privilege that she doesn't even always notice in her everyday life. That's the invisible knapsack that she's wearing of the white privilege. So she made this list of 50 things. They say things like, I can turn on the television or open the front page of the paper and see, my, see people of my race widely represented. White privilege is whether I use checks, credit cards, or cash, I can count on my skin color not to work against the appearance of financial reliability. I can easily buy posters, postcards, picture books, greeting cards, dolls, toys, and children's magazines that feature people of my race. I can be late to a meeting without having the lateness reflect on my race. And then she has, like I said, 50 things that are on here. And when I read this, it was like, once again, defensive, a lot of feelings, but it was like scales fell off my eyes. It was like I could see around me different things than I had ever seen before. I could see in my life around me how uh, I was the norm, that my life, my life as a European American, as a white person was the norm, and then everything else was abnormal, that whiteness was the norm. So for instance, I was assigned uh, in my, my biblical and theological studies a theology book and then a Latino theology book. And that seemed completely normal to me, right? But then I thought about it and I thought, well, why wasn't this called a European theology book or a white theology book? But you didn't need the prefix. Why? Because that was the norm. And it's just like I'd never seen that before. I'd never thought about that before. And it was beginning to shape me in this other way. And, and I remember seeing, like this was mentioned, like images in brochures or books or, or toys and, and realized that it was filled with people that looked like me. And it was the beginning of me realizing that the lack of that diversity was a deficit, was something that I even yearned to see because it mattered and it was important. I felt like I had woken up in the world that I was already living in at that point in, the, in a deeper way to this experience of what was going on around me. I'd go to Target and I'd realize that there's Band-Aids that are called flesh and it's the color of my skin, but not the color of many other people's skin who are walking the aisles with me. I remember going to, to look at makeup and realizing that, that there's lots of different tones for my skin color and very few for darker skin tones. I remember, I don't think it's this way anymore, but there would be the, the huge hair product section and then there'd be the ethnic hair product section. And I realized for the first time that there's a problem with it being called the ethnic hair product section because it makes all the rest the norm and because I have an ethnicity. Just because I'm going to the general hair product section doesn't mean that there's not ethnic reality to who I am. In this class, Race, Ethnicity, and Peacemaking, we had to write an ethnography. And that is basically our ethnic biography. So once again, I'm 19. I've never had to look into this in my life before. I had heard some stories about my family, but this was the first time I had to dig really deep into the story of my great-grandma and her coming here to America from Bohemia, which is now part of Poland, as a Bohemian woman who, in many ways, her family was, was kind of a minority in Poland and now coming here. What did that mean? I had to think about the fact that I'm a descendant of Roger Williams, who helped found Rhode Island and is, was a Christian leader many, many decades ago. And uh, I had to think about the fact that Roger Williams is credited as finding, being a founder of Rhode Island, but that that land where Rhode Island is now was already found. The, the Pequot tribe was living there when Roger Williams showed up with other Europeans. 
And I had to think about that. I had to think about what that meant and what did it mean that generations later, there was a woman that was a part of the Creek Indian tribe, which is a part of the greater Cherokee tribe, living in New Orleans, who met my great-grandfather and is my great-grandmother. What does that mean in the, in the generations, and how do I wrap my head around that? And I've been fascinated to learn more about who I am and where I come from. And I know for a lot of us who are European-Americans or who would consider ourselves white, uh, we don't know our ethnic background. But I have learned even more just about my culture background, too. So like the cultures that I was raised around. So my dad was from New Orleans. So this is a warm climate culture. Do you know there's a difference between warm climate culture and cold climate culture? This is a cold climate culture. So it's different. And so um, I, I remember being confused because I was raised in a home that kind of operated like a warm culture, climate, climate culture, warm climate culture. And uh, I was confused. I was like, why doesn't everybody just say what they mean? I don't understand. What? Just be direct. Say what it is. My aunties from New Orleans, like, it seemed like they could say whatever they wanted about anybody as long as they said, bless her heart, at the end. <laughs> so they would be like, oh, did you see what she was wearing? Bless her heart. Or like, oh, and he just done dropped out of college. Bless his heart. Like, it was the weirdest thing. They just would talk about these things. And that was my experience. And then I, I realized... Now, as I think about my experience in Minnesota, I, I moved here when I was five. So the Scandinavian culture, I'm not ethnically Scandinavian, I don't think at all, but that culture is very prominent here. And so I was raised in this culture as well, the Scandinavian-dominated culture, and so it shaped me. I have had, in my life, a few Swedish immersion experiences. I'm not talking about Ikea. I'm talking about people that are very Swedish, some of you maybe, and I experienced that, and it shaped me culturally as a person. But nothing has shaped my understanding of race and ethnicity uh, like the relationships that I've had with people of color. I think about these relationships, not forced relationships, but intentional relationships. And I actually think there's a pretty big difference. I've prayed that God would give me mentors, God would give me friendships with people that are different than me for years. I think I probably started praying about that when I took this class. And I believe that God has led me to some of those relationships, but if I'm being honest with you, it's taken a lot of courage for me. It's taken courage because I don't like to feel ignorant. I don't like to feel like I don't understand something. And every time I build a relationship with somebody from another culture, I am reminded of the ignorance that I have to what is normal for many other people. I don't like that feeling. It takes courage for me because just like anybody else, it's easiest for me to be around people who are just like me. Man, if I'm honest, I'd rather be pe with people who are in the same life stage as me, who look like me and have the same background than me. Crossing racial and ethnic and, and age and, uh, and social economic diversity, man, that is a whole other thing. If I'm honest, I'd rather stay in what's comfortable. But these relationships with these folks have led me to so many crossing the threshold experiences in my life that I didn't have to take if I didn't want to, but God's given me the courage to do it. I think about these amazing experiences I've had. I think about spending time uh, in the home of my friend Keisha in Florida, and she was making me Belizean rice and beans, and it was such a cool experience for her to teach me about her culture. I think about uh, years ago, my friend Suyan, who's from Korea, I said to her, man, take me to the most authentic Korean that, that they have in the Twin Cities. And she laughed because I don't think she thought much of it was authentic, but we went, and it was awesome. I think about these threshold-crossing experiences. I think about the, the international worship night that we're invited to on Saturday and how, I think two years ago, I was there, and uh, this church is primarily East African, 
And um, spur of the moment, I was asked, pastor, to come up and give a talk, which is culturally appropriate for a primarily African community. These threshold-crossing moments have changed my life. There's been so many of them. But you want to know something that these threshold-crossing moments and, and these relationships have not done? They have not relieved the tension and the anxiety and the angst and confusion and even defensiveness that I have in this area of life. In fact, I think I would say they've made it worse, honestly. And what I mean by that is that I just don't know anybody at this point who cares deeply about this subject, who doesn't feel a lot of tension and pain and confusion at times. Everybody that I know that's passionate about this is, is somebody who feels the, the tension of it and carries that tension with them. And so if that's how you feel, maybe we are finally caring deep enough for it to matter. Racial justice is not just something that I find interesting. To me, it's not a current event based on the last few years or whatever. For me, it's a calling in my life, a lifelong calling. The reality that I will be pursuing this extremely difficult mission until I'm with Jesus is extremely overwhelming for me to think about. But then I think about the fact that that my skin color means that I could avoid this if I want to. I don't have to choose it. And then I quickly think about how uh, the, God has called the church to be a force of reconciliation and justice in the world. And how even though I think because of the, the white privilege that I have, I don't have to engage with this topic, I do have to engage with this topic because God has called me to lead in the church. And God has called me to lead the church. And there's a lot of things that I wish I didn't have to think about, but I do because of the calling that I have, that I think we all have to be people who step forward as God's mission vehicle in the world. And I know that if I tried to kind of skirt this issue, for instance, in my calling, that I would be miserable, because that's what happens when I am outside of the things that I know God wants for me in my life. So after nearly 20 years of trying to be intentional and process this in my life, I still, still feel this tension of trying to understand my white privilege, I still feel this weight of what it means that, that racism creeps up in my heart all the time. I still feel this defensiveness sometimes when people are angry about certain things. And I want to even be vulnerable and honest with you about something specific that, that I experience in this conversation as a pastor. I often feel, I'd say, I think the word I would use is hurt, maybe frustrated, because I feel and have heard people tell me that my passion in this area means a whole lot of other things about me. I've experienced this reality that it feels like, at least to me, like it boxes me in to some certain political persuasion, or it means that I then am on a list of all these other, these other beliefs and, and tenets and, and a whole load of other things that I may or may not have anything to do with me as a person or as a pastor. My goal is to step into God's kingdom spaces, spaces where God's kingdom needs to break in. And at times, I do feel that there's a perception that I have some sort of other agenda besides the kingdom of God agenda. And if I ever do, forgive me, because my agenda is a kingdom of God agenda. I often feel uh, nervous, I think I'd say, or anxious, that when I go and hope to be present with those who are on the margins, that people think that I agree with every tenant of that group that I might be joining. So, so whenever I, I've joined some sort of response led by groups like Black Lives Matter or something like that, it's not because I agree with everything that they're about. I don't agree with everything that any group's about. Let me just tell you that right now. 
So if you're expecting me to do that about your thing, it's not going to happen. People who know me, I think really critically. But I'm trying to live into the crossing the threshold moments of our day. And when I go to these types of events, I go because I think Jesus would be there. My friend Mark Jensen, he's lived out racial justice in North Minneapolis for 30 years. Some of you might know who he is. He always says, Jesus went towards the chaos, not away from it. I want to be where Jesus would be. I want to be where I think Jesus is. And I think that Jesus is often, in a special way, God's presence is with people on the margins. That's how I read the story of Jesus. Jesus led the way in crossing the threshold moments and how he engaged with those on the margins. I want to be where Jesus is. Here's the thing I think that makes the tension and the weight of this topic the most, the most difficult for me in my life. And that is that if you step into this, then you will become deep, I think I'm going to use the phrase, soul friends. You will become deep soul friends with people who are different than you. And that means you feel deeply connected to them. That means that when your heart is connected to someone else's heart, you feel in a different way, not exactly what they're feeling, but you feel some of it. It means that my heart is connected to Keisha and Dee and Leah, and when their hearts break out of fear for the young black sons that they are raising with bravery, my heart breaks too. It means that I can't ignore spaces where only white voices are heard. It means that I'm uncomfortable and I have tension around how that needs to change if we're going to move forward. And even though Mill City is growing in its diversity, I feel consistently uncomfortable about the lack of voices of difference in different areas in our church. That is a constant struggle for me. And I think I've come at this point in my life to some sort of interesting paradox where I have peace with the tension because I think it's going to always be with me. That as long as I choose to let it be with me, it will always be with me. And I know, I know that I can never understand what it's like to live in a black or brown body in this world today. I can't understand what it was like for Jesus to live in a brown body in his world either. But God has done this work in my life in this profound way, and I think the best way I can put it to explain to you is that I'm walking around every day with a broken heart. And since I have a broken heart, there's this way in which I see other people who have a broken heart, and I'm more sensitive to them. And if you know me, I'm not a naturally very sensitive person, okay? This is difficult for me. But God has broken my heart for what breaks his heart, and, and I don't know how to explain it in any other way, but it's like I have this broken heart that's like on the outside of my body, and I'm carrying it with me forever. Here's the thing that I've learned about all of this. It's that I have to let God do that work in me. I've learned that my gut reaction, my gut reaction is to fix it, to figure out what the answer is, to do something, to try to make it better, to, to make this thing go away. And I just, I've come to the conclusion that that's not the right reaction for me. I've learned that the right reaction is to ask God, not what do I do, but what do you want to do in me? Surrendering to God's work in my life is actually the only thing I have control over in my whole life, is whether or not I will surrender to what God wants to do inside of my life. But man, is it tempting to be controlling? Is it tempting to, to use my power and try to fix something? Man, is it tempting to freak out on somebody like my dad did in the airport? 
I haven't been tempted in the airport, but I've been tempted in other places. It's tempting to want to, to, to do something, to move to some sort of false closure so I don't have to feel this tension. It can be resolved. But I've just heard God say to me time and time again, listen, learn, use your voice with other people who have privilege to encourage them to listen and to learn. I've learned that being someone who holds the stories of people on the margins really gently and really well is a very active thing to do. It's a very active way to respond. And I've heard God say to me as a leader consistently, move over, make space, elevate voices of people who are different than you. And when I make a mistake, when I, when I stumble and fall through this or that, the other thing, I hear God inviting me, get up, keep going, stay humble, keep going. And then there's one thing that I feel like Jesus invites me to do more than anything in this subject, and that is to keep him at the center of it all. When Jesus is at the center of my life, when Jesus is at the center of the, the goal that I have to lead this church well, when Jesus is at the center of this conversation, everything starts to make sense based on his life and what he did. But when Jesus becomes a footnote, when the, the Christian way to respond becomes an afterthought instead of our gut response, man, things go sideways really fast. But Jesus consistently invites me to keep him at the center of this conversation, at the center of my life. I'm going to invite the band to come back up, and we're going to close with the time of communion like we've been doing every week, and I, I feel that it's so appropriate because this brings up tension, like I said, and there's a lot that we're feeling, but the reality is, is that Jesus did the ultimate action of reconciliation, didn't he? His death and resurrection, his conquering death on the cross by his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for, for us, we are reconciled to God and we are reconciled to each other. It's an invitation to cross the threshold. It's an invitation to step in to the uncomfortable. And when we come to this table, we are equally broken people, right? We are equally in need of a savior, no matter the color of our skin, no matter our cultural background. We come at the foot of this cross because it's there that we see that we are all God's children. And someday, we will be brought back together in unity, like is described in Revelation 7, but until that day, I think it's going to be hard, and I think it's going to be tense, and we come together at the table reminding ourselves who is God and that we are not. Wherever you are in your story, wherever you are in this story, in this conversation, that is okay. That is absolutely okay. Jesus invites you that if you believe that Jesus is the reconciler in your life who's reconciled you to God, then this table is open for you. You don't need to be a member of our church. Uh, in just a minute, they're going to start some music, and we're going to have people here and here that will hold the bread and the cup, and you take the bread, it's gluten-free, and you dip it into the cup, symbolizing Jesus' body broken for us and his blood that has shed for us so that everything we just talked about is possible. And we're going to have people here on the walls that are willing to pray for you. So uh, let's go into this time of communion as we remember what Jesus has done.